right, good to see all of you. I am Dave, okay? If you're not wearing a name tag today, you're making it hard. Someone's going to call you guy or buddy or sister so-and-so. Put that name tag on so we can hang out after church. Uh, But before I get into the message today, I have one last announcement. Uh, Many of you know we have been raising a bit of extra money to help repair part of our roof over between our gymnasium and North Auditorium. It covers our kids' ministry spaces, our um, kitchen, our fireside room. Lots of ministry happens over there. The cost of the project was $94,000, and we were hoping to raise an extra $30,000 on top of normal giving in order to cover the project. I'm here to tell you, we made it. We're done. We covered the cost. We had 72 different offerings toward this project. Uh, We had gifts as high as $5,000. Many people gave $1,000, but as much, my favorite gift is the $5,000, but, but my favorite is actually, there was, and I don't want, I'm not naming anybody, I don't know who it was, okay? Someone gave $5, and this is why I love the $5 gift. That's someone who said, I love my church, I can't do much, but I'm going to do something, right? Right? So I love my, I can't do much, but I'm going to do something. It's like the widow who gave the two pennies, and Jesus said she gave more than everybody else. So I'm so proud of our church. Thank you so much. It helps us continue to help each other follow Jesus in this great space that God has given us. So thank you. Keep doing it. All right. We are in the exciting conclusion of our series in the book of Genesis through chapters 1 to 11. We've been calling this series the story of all stories. Genesis is a story. It's a story of origins. It's a story of identity. And it's a story of destiny. It tells us where we came from, who we are, and where we're going. And it makes sense of the story of the world. It makes sense of the story of our lives. When we wonder, why is the world the way it is? Genesis helps us make sense of that. When we wonder, why am I the way that I am? Genesis helps us make sense of our story. And Genesis 1 to 11 sets a foundation for the rest of the story of the Bible. It's an explanation of a worldview or a way of seeing reality, the way of seeing reality from God's perspective. And when we learn to see reality from God's perspective and start to live in that reality, we learn to receive and understand and experience God's blessing in our lives. So we've been on a long journey from creation through the fall of humanity to exile from the garden, the uh, escalation of sin and violence to a flood and a rebooting of creation. Now humanity has once again multiplied. They're spreading out. They're traveling and filling the land. But since Adam and Eve left the garden, humanity has been on, on a trajectory eastward. Okay? So the Bible really in, intentionally says that they moved eastward. And that doesn't mean you know, east or west is good or bad, but it's just a way of representing the fact that humanity was moving away from the garden. We were moving away from the presence and blessing of God. So humanity is moving east. Eventually in the biblical story, God calls a guy named Abraham who moves west, which, which represents him moving back into the presence and blessing of God. But here we are at this point in human history, we're moving east. So our final passage in this series is Genesis 11 one through nine. It's a fairly well-known story, the story of the city and tower of Babel. Let's get started. Chapter 11, starting in verse one. At one time, all the people of the world spoke the same language and used the same words. 
as the people migrated to the east, they found a plain in the land of Babylonia and settled there. So here, we're getting set up for this story. All the people spoke the same language. They had no communication barriers. The common bond in the community of humanity was one language that they spoke. It's incredible even today how many years after this, uh, the English language has kind of spread throughout the world and is almost universal in a lot of senses. Anywhere I travel, you can find someone who speaks English, which is great for me because it's the only language I speak. And I recognize any time I travel that most of the rest of the world, those of you who grew up in Canada, especially on the West Coast like me, most of the rest of the world speaks more than one language, right? Almost everybody. I think of Pastor Rajesh who opened the service today. He, I think he speaks five or six languages, Malayalam, Hindi, Punjabi, English, a couple more, you know, tons of languages. I only speak one. How many here speak two or more languages? Two or more. Keep your hands up. Three or more. Three or more, still some, four or more languages. It's so impressive. I don't know how that's possible. It's incredible. But here, in, in this point in Scripture, everyone's just speaking the same language. There's no communication barriers. It's, it's what bound their community together. And so here's the thing uh, that happens. They say to each other, verse 3, they began saying to each other, let's make bricks and harden them with fire. In this region, bricks were used instead of stone and tar was used for mortar. It's strange to think that at some point in the history of humanity, we invented the brick, right? The brick seems so normal, so common. You know, this, this story is partly about innovation. You know, normally you would, in ancient cities, you'd build them out of stone, but there's no mountains to quarry rock from here on the plains of Babylonia. So they, they come up with this innovation of the brick to start to build their city. Verse 4, Then they said, Come, let's build a great city for ourselves with a tower that reaches into the sky, this will make us famous and keep us from being scattered all over the world. Okay, we'll finish the rest of the passage in a little bit. We're going to hang out here for a second because we're introduced to the big problems of the story. Number one, we're told they want to build a city. That's an ominous idea. We'll get to why in a minute. But you also see their motivation. Their motivations are that they want to be famous and they want to keep themselves from being scattered all over the earth. And let's look at why these are a problem. We'll see what God does about them in a minute. But we realize that motivations are really what counts. This, this text is not about whether or not cities are good or bad, or whether or not towers are good or bad, or whether or not innovation and invention and human community is good or bad. But it's the motivation behind all that's going on here that, the, that this story gets at the heart of. First motivation, to be famous. They say, this will make us famous. I don't know about you, maybe I'm a bit cynical, but I get a little bit annoyed with like celebrity culture, right? We, we, take, we take human beings that are just like us and we elevate them on massive pedestals like they're some sort of God in human flesh just because they're like good at pretending to be someone else, right? Did you hear Joe Smith pretending to be Bob Johnson, you know? Give them like, like they, just because they, they have some sort of talent that, that we pay money for, all of a sudden they're this, this deity. And I'm not against actors, it's great. I'm not against professional athletes. I'm, I'm entertained as much as the rest of us. But what happens is we elevate a human being to this high status, and then as soon as they do something we think is wrong, the mob just attacks them, right? And we tear them down and destroy them. But we create this weird situation. And we also see how hard it is on people that we elevate like that. 
Like, humans aren't meant to be worshipped. Humans aren't meant to be put on such a high pedestal and showered with money and riches and glory and pleasures the way we do with celebrities. I think of stories like, uh, you know, a Canadian kid, Justin Bieber, when he first came on the scene, he was this adorable, prepubescent, you know, rock star who was so talented and everyone was so, you know, he was just this adorable kid and we put him on this big pedestal. And most of you know his story, how much he has struggled in his career in his, and in his personal life. And here's a kid who's been trying to follow Jesus, but he was worshipped and showered with money and pleasure and fame because being worshipped is not good for humans. And I think the biblical story shows us that. As soon as we remove God from the picture and elevate ourselves, it actually breaks us down and destroys us. So thinking about how hard it is to be worshipped and what happens is, is when God is removed from the center of our lives and we get a big platform, as our platform grows and our character can't keep up with it, there's a gap that grows. And in that gap is where all kinds of destructive things happen. It happens to pastors too. Pastors get a big platform, they get famous, they're really good at preaching or whatever it is. They get a big platform, they, their platform grows, their character can't keep up, and there's breakdown in the middle because humans aren't made to be worshipped. We remove God from the center of our lives. The next thing that happens, next in line for worship, is the image of God, the human being, and that creates brokenness. But here, this is what the people of Babel say, we want to be famous that's our whole motivation for this project. We want to be looked upon and, and worshipped and elevated. We want people to know who we are. It's our entire motivation. It may seem like they're just pursuing that you know, innocent Hollywood dream. But what they're doing is rejecting God and placing themselves as the center of reality. They're removing God from the center of worship and elevating humankind. Now, the New Living Translation that I've been using in this series uses that phrase, this will make us famous. Other translations you may have in your lap say something like, we will make a name for ourselves, which is likely truer to the original language, same concept, but it connects better with a theme in Genesis, the theme of naming. God names Adam, Adam names the animals, naming is a form of authority and responsibility. So when we decide to make a name for ourselves, we're rejecting God's authority to give us a name. We reject the identity God gives us, and we choose an identity for ourselves. Again, placing ourselves in the center of reality, in the center of worship, instead of having God in that place. Speaking of names, this is too good not to share, and it helps make the point. Now, the city of Babel has its historical root in a guy we were introduced to in chapter 10, I mentioned him briefly last week without much comment. His name was Nimrod. Now, pregnant mamas, you're looking for a Bible name for your kid? Listen, I know, I know the fad is vintage and, and like unusual, right? Nimrod, what a great, like, think about it. Nobody else has this name. It'd be perfect. Nimrod's lineage, you can have famous, terrible cities and empires like Babylon, Assyria, Nineveh, bad, bad places where bad, bad things happen. They all came out from Nimrod. The name Nimrod biblically means rebel, and from Nimrod came cities full of people who rebelled against God and even oppressed people who tried to obey God. This is how Nimrod is introduced in chapter 10. 
Verse 8 and 9. Nimrod was the first heroic warrior on earth. Since he was the greatest hunter in the world, his name became proverbial. People would say, this man is like Nimrod, the greatest hunter in the world. So Nimrod made a name for himself. He was a heroic warrior. He was the greatest hunter in the world. He became famous, the dream of the Babylonians. And it was a compliment. If you were a great hunter or a great warrior, people would say, he's a total Nimrod. Wow, what a Nimrod that guy is. Big compliment. Ernest Shackleton, the famous explorer who who explored and and traveled to the South Pole, he named his ship the Nimrod because the whole idea of Nimrod was adventurous spirit and hunter and powerful and manly and bold. And I know you're all giggling thinking, what? What happened to the name Nimrod? I thought Nimrod meant idiot or bumbling oaf or reserved as an insult, not an adventure out to make brave exploits. And you're right. This is an example how A, language, the meaning of words change over time, and B, making a name for yourself can sometimes turn itself around and be a negative thing. Here's how the name Nimrod turned from being a compliment to an insult. Believe it or not, it was Bugs Bunny. Totally true story. Look it up yourself, okay? If you've watched the Bugs Bunny cartoon growing up, you know that Bugs regularly had to deal with the attentions of the bumbling hunter Elmer Fudd. Be very, very quiet. We're hunting wabbits. Remember Elmer? And Elmer was anything but brilliant. And Bugs constantly tormented him and always escaped the end of Fudd's rifle. And when Bugs was making fun of Elmer, what did he call him? He called him a Nimrod. But it was an ironic statement because Elmer Fudd was anything but a great hunter. And so the cartoon was so popular that Bugs' use of the term Nimrod actually made it back into common speech and popular culture, and now the name means something completely different. So Nimrod may have made a name for himself, but now it's turned around and he sounds like a dork. So, the irony of the people of Babel is that they did become famous. They did make a name for themselves. But history records them not as founders of a great and powerful city, but as a bunch of Nimrods, the Bugs Bunny version of the term. So be careful when you're trying to be famous. You might become famous for all the wrong things. So their first motivation was fame. Their second motivation was to prevent being scattered. Verse 4 again says, this will keep us from being scattered all over the world. They didn't want to be spread out, you know, and, and we can understand that. We, we love community. We love being with the people we love. We love hanging out, particularly with people who are like us. They wanted to build a committee. It was a reasonable idea to enjoy life together. But again, there was a problem with that motivation. When God created humans, what was like the first command he gave them? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And then after the flood, when when Noah and his family came out of the boat, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So at this point in history, the mandate for humankind was not to stop and settle and put down roots. It was to fill the earth. And so their motivation was in direct contradiction to the command of God on humankind at that time. 
So the way they were going to accomplish this, the way they were going to be famous, and the way they were going to keep themselves from being scattered, they were going to build a city with a tower. This is the project that would help them accomplish their goals. They said, come, let's build a city for ourselves with a tower that reaches into the sky. If you pay attention throughout the whole biblical story, you see the theme of the city is developed all the way through the scripture. It starts right at the beginning. Cain kills his brother Abel. He gets sent off into exile. The first thing Cain does is he builds a city. And there's two big things that happen in the lineage, in, in kind of the history of Cain's family in that city. First, we see innovation. People start crafting tools and making music. And isn't that what a city is like? There's innovation and there's ideas and culture and art and education. And cities allow people to specialize in specific industries because you don't have to feed your own family through your own farming and agriculture. You can just buy that and you can do a different job. And cities allow that sort of thing. Cities can be the most incredible incubators of the best that humanity can produce. But the second thing we saw happen in Cain City is oppression and violence. In Cain City, we're introduced to a guy named Lamech. He's the first guy to practice polygamy. He takes multiple wives. And then he also brags about killing a young man who offended him. So we see this level of oppression and violence in the city. And isn't that what a city is like as well? The worst things in humanity happen in cities. Oppression, violence, and injustice. A city is a place where all the best and worst of humanity are multiplied to a greater scale. The rest of the Bible goes on to describe how cities impact the world. They either represent the goodness of God or they side with Satan and represent the beast and his ruin and destruction. Jerusalem becomes the city of God, whereas Babylon becomes the city of the beast. And in ironic twists and turns, there are times when Jerusalem becomes beastly and Babylon becomes godly. Cities are messed up sometimes and sometimes they're the most amazing places in the world. But in the Bible, one of the things that defined a city is that cities have walls. A city is designed to keep people out. It recognizes the violence and the tendency of, of oppression and violence in the world. So it wants to keep the violence out of the city. But it also highlights the greed of humans. Because walls also keep people out so that we don't have to share with them. We have our things. We have our stuff. You don't get any of it. We're keeping it for ourselves. We're in. You're out. So here in Babel, we're making a name for ourselves. We're going to be famous. We're going to be famous, but you're not. You're going to be unknown. You're going to be left out. You're going to stay out there. You can't have our stuff. That's the project of Babel. In the middle of the city, the people planned to make a tower that reaches to the sky. The idea was to create a place where heaven and earth would connect. and Humanity could reach the heavens in their own power. The name Babel originally meant gate, or pardon, Babylon itself, meant gate of the gods. Gate of the gods. You see what they were trying to do? They were trying to create a gateway by human ingenuity and creativity where they could travel between heaven and earth in their own power. They were reaching in order to take what wasn't theirs, what only belonged to God. It was a quest for human transcendence to reach out and take whatever they wanted without the permission of God, like Eve reaching for the fruit. The Tower of Babel is the culmination of human pride and arrogance put in a building. It represented how the human heart had turned away from God and in toward itself. 
We pick it up in verse 5 in God's reaction. But the Lord came down to look at the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord came down. This is for sure an insult and a dig at the people of Babel. They were building a tower that reaches to the heavens, but God had to come down to see it, right? What's going on way down there in Babel? What are the people doing down there? I better get down there so I can see this tiny little thing that they're building. The tallest mountain in the world, Mount Everest, is 8,800 meters above sea level. That's over 29,000 feet. The tallest man-made structure in the world is the Burj Khalifa in Dubai, 829 meters or 2,700 feet. Closer to home, most of us can see it from most of the city, Mount Baker, 3,288 meters or 10,079 feet. The world is covered with tall towers and cities and even taller mountains, and we look up at them and say, wow, those are so massive, they reach all the way to the heavens. Reuben, buddy, can you bring me my prop? Thank you. All right, this is a billiard ball. They're very smooth. They're supposed to roll perfectly so that you can play pool. And if you shrunk the world down to the size of this billiard ball, the world with all its mountains and all its tall towers and all its crevices and everything would be just as smooth as this ball. You might be able, if you, you know, picked your fingernail around, you might be able to find a little tiny little grain on there that represented Mount Everest. You might be more likely to find a small little groove that represents some of the massive trenches and depths in the ocean. But all our tall towers and all our big mountains are actually nothing compared to God in the heavens. We have to come down to see what's going on in Babel. Thanks, buddy. Boom. The highest highs and the lowest lows to God are not that big. And so for humans, for us to think that we could, in our own power, create something that reaches the heavens is obliviousness, human arrogance, delusions of grandeur. These were a bunch of nimrods. No idea how small they were in comparison to the greatness of God. So God came down. Verse 6, look, he said, the people are united and they all speak the same language. After this, nothing they set out to do will be impossible for them. Come, let's go down and confuse the people with different languages. Then they won't be able to understand each other. In that way, the Lord scattered them all over the world and they stopped building the city. That is why the city is, was called Babel, because that is where the Lord confused the people with different languages. In this way, he scattered them all over the world. God says, I need to stop this before it gets out of hand. His reaction isn't concerned that they'll accomplish their goal because they wouldn't be able to. His reaction is concerned that they're on a trajectory that's going to lead to great pain and suffering. And that's why he stops the project. He confuses their languages so they can't communicate the thing that bound them together as a community. He scattered that and it sends them out into the world. The very thing they were trying to avoid. Their city, the gate of the gods, became then not a symbol of human power and achievement, but of human confusion. A couple points of application from the story of Babel. Number one, 
Babel highlights the way God responds to human arrogance. The point of Babel is not that God hates cities. He loves cities. It's not that God hates towers or architecture. He loves innovation and construction. It's not that God was jealous of human achievement or that he was threatened by them in any way. Cities would have emerged in the human story at some point. As populations grew, you'd need to develop infrastructure and roads and plumbing and and commerce and sewage treatment. Cities were inevitable. In fact, when you look forward in time and you see Uh, when you see our heavenly experience described in the book of Revelation, it's not just going back to a garden. It's actually a combination of the garden God created and human ingenuity. It's a garden city. Two things put together. God loves cities and redeems the city in his new creation. Cities represent the creativity of God in humans. We're creating something amazing in the image of God. We are builders, just like our God is a builder, and he blesses the work of our hands. But Babel represented something different. It was human arrogance. Taking the gifts of God and using those gifts to elevate ourselves. To throw God off his throne, to take his position as our own. And when we do that, we take on the image of the serpent, not the image of God. And God will always do battle against the serpent you join the serpent's team, you will find yourselves in opposition to God himself. James 4, 6 reminds us, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is the wonderful thing. God has given you gifts and talents and abilities and resources for a reason, because you are made in his image, and he wants you to use those things to leverage the kingdom of God and be a blessing in this world and be fruitful and to multiply. But at the heart of it can't be a desire to be famous. It can't be a desire to disobey God and be your own God. It must be to glorify God, trust in God, and live within his reality. And if you do that and you use your gifts to leverage goodness in the world and to bless people and to trust God, if you become famous as a result, praise God. But he'll give you everything you need to be able to handle that fame. I think of Solomon in his early days, at least. He he trusted God and asked for wisdom. And God said, because you trusted me and asked for a good thing, I'll give you even more. Right? The, The people of Babel were trying to take the gifts of God, push God out of the center, and make themselves the middle of everything. And God opposed that project. Secondly, Babel highlights the human quest for community. The human quest for community apart from the presence of God. At the center of the Babel project was a desire to have something that would bind people together. And that's a good desire, a common purpose, a shared ideal, a communal project that could align everyone on the same mission. They wanted to build something that meant something and could give a sense of shared identity. This is why humans join sports teams or CrossFit gyms or quilting clubs. It's why we love guys' night or ladies' night. We're all looking for something that's going to bind us together with other people who are like us and we can share a mission with. But when the center of that identity and mission is built on something other than God and his purposes, the trajectory is failure and ultimately pain. And so God actually, in grace, stepped into the Babel project early to keep it from causing the pain it would have caused in the end. Not only was it doomed to fail, but it was an exclusive project. It had walls and barriers to keep people out. Only the people who share our language are in. 
Only the people that are like us are in. Everyone else is out. There's no room for other people in here. This is just for us. Humanity has a propensity to eject God from the center and insert another idea or project to replace him, to bind us together. It can be as benign as a sports team or as powerful and dangerous as a a militant empire. But God refuses to be cast out. He refuses to live outside the walls. And he also hears the cries of injustice from those who have been oppressed and excluded by these godless human endeavors. When we instigate projects that expel God from the center, God tends to come down and dismantle them. So something to meditate on at home, in your own life, in what you're involved in, and what you see in the world. What are some proverbial towers of Babel in the world today? Human projects that we're all in on, that we're supporting, that we're participating in, that actually aren't centered on the goodness of God and the purposes he has in the world. God will come down and dismantle those projects. Now, while God, <clears throat> while God came down to dismantle the Babel project, it's not the only time he came down in history. And then he didn't always just come down to dismantle, he comes down to build. Of course, later, God comes down in the form of Jesus. God became flesh, born in a manger, in a human family, lived in the cities of our world, dwelling among us. And while he was here, he dismantled the systems and religion that othered people and actually created barriers for people to connect with God and pushed people out while only excluding certain people. And then he rebuilt something that would give access to all humankind He introduced to us a new kind of community to bind us together, one that doesn't have walls. It builds bridges, a community he called the ecclesia, the gathering of God's people, the church, a multi-ethnic, multi-generational, multilingual, global community of people who have God at the center of their lives. And he binds us together on a common mission to spread the good news, not just in one place, but to scatter throughout the world the good news of a new kind of city and a new kind of kingdom, one without walls and where there's room for everyone who wants to enter. And of course, God came down another time. In wind and fire, the Holy Spirit descended on the church in the book of Acts, the day of Pentecost. His personal presence and power come to bind us together in his power and unity with a common purpose of expanding the goodness of the kingdom around the world. On that day, God reversed the curse of Babel. Instead of confusing our language, he he actually empowered our speech to bring people together instead of to scatter people. He empowered the speech of the believers. They spoke in tongues and people gathered from all nations and said, we can hear them speaking in our own languages. The gift of the Spirit, uh, the gift of tongues dismantled barriers and, and between people groups and bound us together. The gift of the Spirit is not just speaking in tongues. The gift of tongues is, is not a sign of spiritual maturity. The gift of the Spirit is a binding agent to bring God's people together. And the gift of tongues is a sign that the barriers of the world are coming down. That God is bringing people together into a new kind of community, a world that can come together as one under the banner of Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 2, they were completely amazed. How can this be, they exclaimed. These people are all from Galilee, and yet we hear them speaking in our own native languages. 
Here we are, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, people from Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and province, the province of Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the areas of Libya beyond Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, and we hear these people speaking in our own languages about the wonderful things God has done. They stood there amazed and perplexed. What can this mean? They asked each other. It meant that God had come down. And he was building something new. He was building something new with something in the center that could actually bind all these nations together, the power and presence of his Holy Spirit. And he gave us his spirit to represent him to the world and draw all creation into his goodness. And wasn't that the point from the very beginning? Wasn't that the idea of God making us in his image? that we would be his vice regents, that we would represent him, that we would go through all creation announcing the goodness of God in the world? That's what he came to do at Pentecost. And of course, we are waiting for one last time when God will come down. The return of Jesus and the arrival of what? Do you remember? A holy city. A holy city. A city with room everyone. John the Revelator tells us he saw in chapter 21, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow, or crying, or pain. All these things are gone forever. All the terrible things that can happen in human cities, tears and death and sorrow and crying and pain, gone forever because the holy city has come down and we are bound together eternally by the power and the presence of God at the center of everything. This is the trajectory of your life and my life when we trust in the goodness of God, and we keep him at the center, the binding agent of all things in our lives. And we make his name great, rather than rejecting him and ejecting him from our lives. We make his name great in the world, rather than our own. The band's going to come back, and we'll close with a song of worship and response before we go for lunch. But I want to take an opportunity, just in prayer and response, to meditate on these things. To meditate on how we have collectively or individually sought, instead of making God's name great in the world, to make our own name great. To, to, make, to make the name of Dave great. <laughs> or even APA great. Or whatever, whatever person or thing you want to put in that. No, no, no. God is the great one. If he decides to make your name great, wonderful. But it's only through making his name great that we will see his kingdom come and will be done in our lives. So in what ways have we participated in projects that are doomed to failure because they've expelled God? And I also want to spend a moment asking God to bind us together by his spirit. It's the spirit of God that brings unity to the church.